Let's actually just continue in, out of, in an attitude of prayer. Would you, um, would you pray with me? Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. Eternal God, you were before all things. You are present here with us now. And you will return in King Jesus. Ever-present Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here amongst us as we gather, as we sing, as we pray, as we share stories of your activity amongst us, as we come to your word. Soften our hearts that our eyes might see Jesus today, we pray. Open our ears that we might hear your word for us today. Open our hearts that we might receive your love afresh. We pray in the name of the Father, Son and Spirit. Amen. Amen. You could be anywhere else right now. Know if you think about that, you don't have to be here, but I think it's a good choice because God is in our midst. Where else would you rather be? I wonder if you've ever found yourself saying with your head in your hands, oh, sorry about that, <laughs> whoa, with exasperation, ah. You had one job, and you couldn't even do that. All the mothers in the room. <laughs> or maybe someone said to you, oh, you had one job. That's all you had to do. A couple of people had one job, couldn't quite get it right. Um, this person here just uh, had one job. It's just like, you just had to get that line straight. That's all you had to do. Couldn't do it. This next person, uh, turn left here. Ah, oh, so close. They had one job. How'd you like to win this prize? Congratulations, you came thirdst. <laughs> the metal engraver had one job, and they couldn't even get that right. You know, as we continue in our series today to the letter to the Philippians, we come to the first time the Apostle Paul really gives any explicit instruction uh, to the Philippian church. There's been a lot of thanksgiving, there's been a lot of prayer, there's been a lot of update on his situation, but today we come to his first explicit uh, instruction, and his point for them is really that you just have one job. That's all you need to do. By way of recap, over the past few weeks, we've been introduced the big ideas driving Paul's letter to the Philippians. 
Paul finds himself in one of his many imprisonments, uh, likely in Rome, having been visited by Epaphroditus, who is a member of the Philippian church, who brought him a financial gift to care for him while he was in prison. And he heard the situation of the early believers in this Roman colony called Philippi from Epaphroditus, and so he writes this letter to them to encourage them. And it's a letter of friendship, an ancient letter of friendship, which has certain uh, features to the way it's composed. It's a letter dripping with love and affection for this church, which Paul was involved in planting, and it is, he's grateful for their participation in the gospel from the very beginning right up until now. Now, the situation of the Philippians in Philippi is that they're a church who, on the whole, are doing pretty well. Uh, which is the cause of much joy for Paul. And they find themselves, though, in this situation where there's mounting opposition from the culture at large, from the Romans uh, who occupy the land, because of their confession that Jesus is Lord. That was central to their confession of faith, that Jesus is Lord. And so for a Roman ruler to hear that, um, the murmurs of that confession immediately in their mind they thought, well, if you're declaring that Jesus is Lord, that by default means that you're declaring that Caesar is not. And so that causes a whole lot of issues for the Romans. So there's this external pressure around. And then also internally, the church is relationally fairly well, and yet there's potentially some niggles going on, potentially some posturing or one-upping of one another. And so, while the overall feel of the letter is, as I said, positive, affirming and encouraging, uh, Paul's broad intent for the Philippians is that they'd continue to faithfulness in Jesus despite the external opposition they were facing, and that they'd remain unified as a body of believers in contrast to some of that internal posturing that was going on. In a phrase, the call to the Philippians was for them to stick together and to stick with Jesus. To stick with Jesus and to stick together. Last week we saw, as is customary in ancient letters of friendship, that Paul gave the Philippians an update on his situation with the intent of relieving their anxiety uh, because he was in prison Uh, but also to serve as a pattern for them to follow. This is what following Jesus looks like. Because uh, for Paul, uh, he was the founding member of their church, and so for the Philippians to have their apostle in chains, uh, arrested for the faith that they were uh, confessing to, it was almost as though everything was falling apart. Our apostles in prison, this is not good, but Paul explains that regardless of the fact that he's locked up, the gospel is getting out there, it's being preached, which is his sole purpose in life anyway, so he's filled with joy, despite his circumstance. In fact, Paul's life is so centered on Christ that in a moment of soliloquy, or almost thinking out loud as we looked at last week, he says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. He thinks, I don't know what I'd prefer. I want to depart and be with Christ because that's the goal of my life. That's what I love in life. He is the one who my life is all about. And yet, if I depart, I can't remain with you and, and continue to serve you and lead you and have a fruitful labor. And so he's like, I don't know what I would prefer. What shall I choose? In sharing all this, Paul's intention is to update 
them on where he's at, but also offer a pattern of life that is utterly devoted and fully surrendered to Christ. Now, that's where last week's message actually landed. If you were with us, that's where we finished. What does it look like for me to confess in my life that for me to live is Christ period, not for me to live is Christ plus whatever else I want to add in, or flip that around, for me to live is whatever I'm pursuing in life, good grades, good job, successful family, lots of holidays, pleasure in life, whatever it is, plus Jesus to make that happen. No, what does it look like for us to be able to say, for me to live is Christ, full stop. That's where we finished last week. But in reality, Paul only calls us to follow his pattern of life because his pattern of life is patterned on the king of life, which is Jesus himself. And he says, follow me and my example implicitly there, but also explicitly in Philippians 3.17, because ultimately he doesn't want people to become disciples of Paul. He wants people to become disciples of Jesus Christ, which is what his life is all about. His goal is that we'd follow Jesus. And so this morning as we continue, if the pattern from Paul to follow is utter devotion to Jesus, today we're going to actually look at the life and character of Jesus, the one we are called to devote ourselves to. And so though our text is a longer one today, Philippians 1.27 through to 2.18, it all centers around the first explicit command or instruction that Paul gives the church. So if you, I'll say that again if you're writing that down. Our text today is Philippians 1, 27 through to 2, 18. And this whole section serves this initial exhortation where Paul says this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, at this point, Paul's immediate future isn't altogether certain. But he says, whatever happens to me, whether I go on living or whether execution at the hands of the Romans in this prison is my future, you have one job. And that's to conduct yourselves or live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Simple as that. That's our message for today. I just might take a little bit more time to say it. Let's see how all of this works together. Let's read from Philippians 1.27 and then go on. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or not only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, believe it or not, in the original Greek language, everything that's on the screen there is one impossibly long sentence. (laughs) I thought about taking one big long breath and just sort of saying it at you, but I thought that would be unhelpful. (laughs) Paul wouldn't pass his year 12 English exam, I'd just you know, for those who are doing exams at the moment. But nevertheless, in this impossibly long sentence are some of the big ideas that's driving this letter to the Philippians. As I've already pointed out, the key exhortation is to live a life or conduct ourselves or themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, it's worth pointing out, even at this point, that what Paul is not saying, he is not saying, live your life 
so that you're worthy of the gospel. That's a really important distinction. He is not saying live your life so that you are worthy of the gospel or so that you are worthy of God. There is no indication here or anywhere in Scripture that our effort, our behavior, or our way of life in any way makes us worthy of the gospel. The reality is that the good news of the reign of Jesus brought about through his death and resurrection uh, is available to all by his grace through faith. Ephesians 2 talks about that not anything we have done or could do. And if you are new to faith, or if you're exploring who this Jesus is, or trying to understand what it means to have faith in this God revealed to us in Jesus, this is a central truth about God's, about God's grace, His love and presence that is available to you today. There is nothing that you could have done, can do, or will do that will make you worthy of Him. It is all of God's grace and it is available to you today through faith in Him. Now what Paul is actually saying is that real faith in Christ and the receiving of His grace through faith will have a transformative, ethically lived out reality that will flow from it. But they are in response to God's grace, not in order to gain or earn God's grace. In other words, Paul is simply saying, you have been transformed into a new kind of person through faith in Christ, and so now it's time to live it out, to live into the reality of who you are, your identity in Jesus. Conduct yourselves in such a way that the transforming power of Jesus through the gospel displays who you are and who you are becoming in Jesus. In other words, live out your faith. Then the fruit or the result of living out your faith will be the character of Jesus through the, uh, living out the character of Jesus through the gospel will result in things like this, standing firm in our faith, united in the Spirit of God, Striving together as one, united in faith for the furtherance of the gospel, being unafraid from the opposition that may come. And in this, we come face to face with the sobering reality that for those who'd reject Jesus' grace and love and presence, while uh, there is a sobering reality for them in our text today, while at the same time there is hope held out in the gospel for those who are in Christ by God's grace through faith. And this is a grace that draws us not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer with Christ as well. And this is the pattern that Paul laid out for us last week as he suffered in prison yet continued to glory in Christ, seeing his circumstances as what it is to live a life worthy of the gospel or a life that reflects the gospel, a gospel of a king who came to serve, to suffer, to die. You see, for the Philippians who were not imprisoned in the same way as Paul, but were experiencing the same level of Roman opposition, Paul identifies with them, drawing parallels between his situation and theirs, reminding them that suffering is at the heart of the gospel. 
And that's a theme that he will return to again and again in his letter and indeed in the verses that will follow this morning. So, to the Philippians facing difficulty and opposition, Paul goes in to say, again in another impossibly long continuous Greek sentence from chapter 2 verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, the implication here being that the answer to all of this is yes and yes and yes. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, which you have, if you have any comfort from His love, which you have, any common sharing in the Spirit, which you have, if any tenderness and compassion, which you have, Paul then, with a very personal touch, revealing his heart for the people, goes on to highlight yet again what a life reflecting Jesus and the gospel really looks like. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but to the interests of others. So what is it that we see here? What does it look like to live a life in response to the gospel, a life of the gospel lived out? It is a life of shared unity through humility. It is a life together of unity through humility. So let's consider each of those for a moment. Let's consider unity for a moment, because there is oneness language all throughout this passage that we have read today. If we scan back across, I don't have it on the screen, but if it's in front of you, we see stand firm in the one spirit. We see striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. We see a common sharing in the gospel. We see being like-minded. We see being of one spirit and of one mind. Oneness, unity, permeates this text. The New Living Translation puts verse 2, which on the screen like this, he says, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. By agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Hmm. What does that mean? Does that mean that I have to like the movies that you like? I'm not really a movie person, sorry to disappoint you. Does that mean that I have to find interesting what you find interesting, and you have to find interesting what I find interesting? Because I get a lot of eye rolls from our young people when I start talking about running. It just... (laughs) No. Paul is not saying for us to become the same person in our interests or in our personalities or what we happen to like or our preferences. Being like-minded and united is not about interest or preference. It's about identity and purpose. Write that one down if you're writing notes. Paul is saying that being like-minded and united is not about interest or preference, it's about identity and purpose. What's our identity? 
that we are the beloved children of God, forgiven by the blood of Jesus, ushered into eternal life in His resurrection. We are the one in whom Christ dwells by His Spirit. We are united with, in, and through Christ Jesus. That's our identity, and He is the one that unites us, Jesus Christ. Not whether you think my opening stories or sermon illustrations are funny, not whether you think I'm a good preacher, whether you think Rob's a good worship leader, whether you like the style of music that we do, if we do too many hymns, not enough hymns, it's too loud, too soft, the chairs are comfy, the chairs are not, the coffee's too hot, the coffee's too cold. That's not what unites us. What unites us is Jesus Christ and our identity in Him. What about our purpose? Because it's our identity and purpose that unites us. Fundamentally, our purpose is to know and be known by Jesus and in turn make him known that God might be glorified. In a phrase, our purpose is to follow Jesus and fulfill his mission in community together. It's a purpose that unites us across all our difference across all our life experience. It's Jesus and the identity and purpose we have in him that brings us and holds us together. And so if Jesus really became the unifying feature of a church along with the identity and purpose that we have in him, what would, we, what would that look like? What would we begin to see? What would we notice amongst a community? Well, there wouldn't be any selfish ambition. There wouldn't be any vain conceit or there wouldn't be any pride. Rather, in humility, others would be valued above ourselves as we look to their interests and not our own. Unity. And it's a un unity that comes through humility. So let's consider humility now for a moment. Quick question, hands up. Who feels they're quite humble? Asha, you are. Yeah, <laughs> you are humble. Humility is a unique one, isn't it? The moment you think you have it, it disappears, just like that. If we're committed to unity in Jesus, in our identity as his followers and his purpose and his mission, living lives that reflect the gospel, what would we see? We'd see a community of people who in their attitudes to one another had the same mindset as Christ Jesus which is what Paul goes to next from verse 5. The same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death on a cross and it's here in this text that we find ourselves at the gravitational center of not only the text before us today but the whole book of philippians uh, where in what many consider to be an early ancient hymn that paul points to not only who jesus is in his eternal divinity and equality with god but also who he is in his character by what he does and there's no other way to describe God, the God that's revealed to us here in Jesus Christ as the ultimate expression of agape love. That is a love that wills and acts for the good of another. That's what we see here. The God who is love, who wills and acts for the benefit of another. 
We see a God who shares the same nature, status, and glory of God, but contrary to any models of power and authority that the Philippians or the Roman Empire or even our culture we'd find today, Jesus didn't see equality as something with God to something to be grasped onto, held onto, used or exploited to his own advantage, as many translations have it. He is a God revealed to us in Jesus who is love made known through the downward trajectory that is humility. And we see this downward movement in this early hymn. Track with me in this. We see in Jesus his self-sacrificing love through humility as he goes downward into his incarnation. The Bible word for being born in human likeness, taking on flesh, dwelling among us. The all-powerful, all-transcendent God of all, embracing the limitations of his own creation in humanity. Why? Well, not so that we could serve him, but so that he could serve us, taking on the very nature of a servant. But that's not the end of the lowering. Not only did he become a servant, taking on human likeness, he served to the point of death. But even that's not the end of the lowering and his humility because he died even death on a cross. The depths of shame in Roman civilization as those crucified were hung publicly on crosses, stripped, beaten, mocked, spat at and hung on crosses on the main road in and out of the city so that anyone passing by would hear from the Romans just to remind you who's in charge, look what we're capable of. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ? This is what it looks like. In an age of self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, self-satisfaction, self-protection, self-fulfillment, self-everything, Jesus is calling his church to live out the gospel of Jesus, which is a life that is completely and utterly oriented away from the self towards another, away uh, from ourselves, oriented in love towards each other. In a life of self-everything, Jesus calls us to be selfless. Now, is that going to cost us? Absolutely. It cost Jesus. It cost him his life. But it's what living a life that reflects the gospel with Jesus as the pattern and the spirit as the power within us is all about? Absolutely it is. Now here's what's also true. Death is actually not the end of the story. It wasn't for Jesus, it's not for us, and it's not where Paul finishes his text here. Because there's a couple more verses to this early hymn which say this. Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, I mentioned before that suffering is at the heart of the gospel and it is. How can it not be when we follow a God who uh, is a suffering servant for us. But it's only at the heart of the gospel in that suffering and death is the doorway to resurrection. And therein lies the hope. Friday came 
But praise God that Sunday followed straight after. Because if it didn't, if this ancient hymn here that we are reflecting on today ended with Jesus' death on the cross without resurrection, without exaltation, without his glorification, then what we're reading here isn't a God who is humble. We're not reading about humility. We're reading about plain and simple humiliation. It's a, God, it's a, it's a man, Jesus, who was either a liar or a lunatic or a madman walking around claiming, I'm God, this is what it looks like to be God, and then eventually just dies on a cross. He's not God, he's just a dead guy. Humiliated, beaten, mocked, scorned, Romans win, get what they're after. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then all the claims about who he was, what he was here to do and achieve for humanity were false because he's not the Messiah. He's not who he claimed to be. He's just a, humi- a humiliated liar or madman. But what looked like humiliation and failure to those who looked on on Friday by Sunday was actually revealed as God's greatest act of love, God's greatest act of self-sacrifice, what actually was true humility through his vindication as he passed through death, rising up from the grave and now is ascended to the right hand of the Father as exalted Lord of all. And in this we have incredible hope that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And we can be guaranteed of that because Jesus has gone before us and is risen at the right hand of the Father right now. That as we participate in the sufferings of Christ, so too we will share in the resurrection and life of Christ. And that for all eternity as we look forward to that day where every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so with the pattern of Jesus central to a life lived worthy of the gospel, the Spirit of God as the empowering presence and transformative presence that enables us to think less of ourselves and more uh, to live our lives for the sake of God and others, and the hope held out for us in Christ through his vindication, his resurrection, his exaltation. Paul would simply say again to the Philippians, to any of the followers of the way of Jesus who would overhear his letter, and to us here today, he would say, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. In a phrase, you've got one job. Live out the reality of the gospel as made possible by God's transforming work in us by his spirit as he works in us to will and to act according to his purpose. In this we will be united in identity and purpose looking not only to our own interests but the interest of others just as Christ has done for us. And so Paul concludes... Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, may we shine. Not because we're worthy, but because you are in us. And so our prayer is really, Lord Jesus, would you shine? 
would you work in our hearts that we might will, that we might desire your good purpose and that that desire would translate into action. May we live lives that reflect the life of Christ and the good news of the gospel. As we travel through our present sufferings, whatever they look like for each of us as we all bring different stories. We keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, because you died for us. But praise God, you rose for us. And you are seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted as Lord of all. And you are coming back. And in that we have amazing hope. And we ground ourselves afresh in that today. So Lord Jesus, would you shine through us in our shared life together and as we scatter into the week. Have your way in us. Have your way through us. We pray in your amazing name, Lord Jesus. Amen.